Listen carefully, we will say this only once. Hello, welcome to the unacceptable bullshit edition of Romaniacs, the podcast that regards Brexit like a glass of milk that's been knocked off the kitchen table. We know there's going to be a huge crash and a mess, but nobody seems able to move fast enough to stop it. I'm Dorian Linsky, and I'm here with our two regular co-presenters. Ian Dunt is the editor of Politics.co.uk, and he spends every day in the trenches at Brexit. <laughs> Hello, Ian, how are you? I mean, there's, you know, Sundays. On Sundays, I try to switch it off. I it's bet like... you don't. I bet there's some Brexit <laughs> on Sundays. <laughs> you know, things actually on days like that, I'm usually Not okay. Not English Brexit, but like a, a light <laughs> Brexit. Well, it's, it's sort of right until I get drunk, and if I get drunk, I suddenly check Twitter, and then I... Quite, I get quite cross, <laughs> and then things happen. But generally speaking, if you don't get drunk on a Sunday, it's possible to not think about Brexit, I find. Do you miss the days when there were other political stories, like good old-fashioned sort of scandals and arguments? Um, that's what you sort of, sort of yes and no. Like, on the, on the no side, there is like a, like, you don't have to multitask. You know, as soon as now it's, Brexit is happening, and so I just wanted to write about that, and so there's a simplicity of sort of purpose to your day. Like, you just feel like it's always going to be on the subject. The, the, the yes side is... I used to write on things like drug law reform and immigration reform and, and sort of, you know, detention centres and things like that. And now you just feel like there's no chance of any progress on those issues, on those things that affect us, because the full bandwidth of government's attention is always going to be on Brexit. So the no part is you just feel like all of this fighting is to get back to where we were rather than yeah. to achieve anything. And all this positive. other stuff is just sort of on hold. Exactly. And we also have Peter Collins, formerly business editor at The Economist, who now likes to describe himself as an armchair Brexitologist. And Peter anchored the show last week while I was away and did an uncomfortably fantastic job. <laughs> Very kind. <laughs> so I've, uh, I've, I've come back to stamp my identity on it like a, like a lifetime dictator. But you have like no, Kim Jong-il doing on No holiday. fears for your job. I've been followed down the street all week by angry crowds taunting me and shouting, Oh, Dorian Linsky. <laughs> so they've been waiting. Thousands of listeners have been waiting for your second coming. That's, that's good to know. Whew. And we're delighted to have special guest Monique Hawkins. She's a software engineer from Surrey. She's Dutch by birth and she lived in the UK for 24 years. She made headlines around the world earlier this year when she applied for UK citizenship after the referendum. And the Home Office refused her and told her to make plans to leave the UK. This was after filling out the infamous 85-page permanent residency form and before we've even left the EU. Hi Monique, we're delighted to have you here. Thank you. And you can stay as long as you like. And we'll, we'll talk about this horrible experience later, but you described it as, uh, as being a bit like something out of Monty Python. How, how was that? Well, yeah, after sort of several attempts at complaining and writing via my um, MP, and in the end um, I kept getting a computer says no reply, and in the end I insisted on getting a proper, proper complaints uh, address. And so I wrote a very well-worded complaint and eventually got a reply back saying, I'm really sorry, but we don't accept your complaint as a valid complaint because it doesn't comply with our 34-page complaints guidance document. <laughs> At that point, I felt uh, it was Monty Python. Did you, did you break something? I would have broken something. Like that. Well, at that point, I went and approached uh, The Guardian, <laughs> which, which is kind of what changed my life afterwards. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we'll talk about that later. Meanwhile, Brexit is the gift that keeps on giving, and there have been a few interesting developments since we were last together. There's the fantastic news of Donald Trump offering us a trade deal very, very quickly to make up for us leaving the single market. And it's no way troubling that we're going to be dependent on a serial con artist and fantasist <laughs> for our trade in the future. Then the more encouraging news that Romaniac's favourites, Anna Subri and Chuka Amuna, are launching a new all-party parliamentary group on EU relations. This is all well and good, but what's it for and what can it achieve? And finally, attentive Twitter users will have seen former Vote Leave kingpin Dominic Cummings having what can charitably be called a change of heart over Britain leaving the nuclear regulator Euratom. On his Twitter account, Odyssean Project, he said, Government morons, 
say they were withdrawing from Euratom, near retarded on every dimension. Dominic <laughs> writes a lot about science and physics, so he's clearly discovered that Brexit is a bad idea on multiple planes of reality. So let's start one by one. Trade deals. Peter, the offer of a very quick trade deal with the USA. We should obviously do such deal with a very long spoon. What happened this week? Well, Theresa May and Trump met, and he is offering this trade deal very, very quickly. But there are any number of reasons not to get too excited about this. First of all, there is, as we know, Mr Trump's distant relationship with the truth and the fact that when it comes to reliability, he's about as dependable an ally as Michael Gove was to Boris Johnson. Second... He got elected by promising his supporters an America first protectionism. And what was one of his first acts? It was to pull out of TTIP, which was a bigger version of a transatlantic trade deal involving the whole European Union. So why would he now really be interested in signing a sort of miniature version of this just with Britain, you know, just to get more access to the British market? Third, trade deals have to go through Congress. Now, Congress can give the president of the day fast-track authority, which means that the president has freedom to negotiate the deal, and then Congress just says yes or no to it. However, that isn't going to happen in the present Congress, even with a Republican president or Republican Congress. You're just not going to get fast-track. And so, therefore, if Trump does actually agree a very good deal with Britain very quickly, Congress then will pick through it line by line, unpick it, every single lobby will talk to its local congressman and will say, we don't want British access to this, we don't want British access to that. And just one fourth point, how can America really agree a trade agreement with Britain when it doesn't know what access Britain will have to the European market? So the idea that this can be done quickly, is, is you know, if at all, is, is, is just fantasy. I'm sure Trump's on top of all of this. I'm sure he's thought it through. Would not have spoken out of turn. He just hasn't told us yet. Yes, indeed, of course, yes. I mean, the Trump edition is this sort of toxic chaos agent to it. But the truth is, UK-US trade deal would anyway take an extraordinarily long time and be very hard to do. I mean, the first thing is, it's not just on access to single markets, it's also on standards. You know, whatever we agree with the Europeans on where our standards are will help to define the kind of relationship that we can have with the Americans. That can't get sorted until the deal with the EU is sorted, and that's not going to get sorted for at least seven years or so. But there's something bigger. I mean, you know, look, if it happens very, very quickly, which I think was Donald Trump's exact quote, it basically means one thing. It means that we will have given their agricultural sector just freely, basically for cheap food to come flooding into our markets, and we haven't achieved any penetration for our financial services. Because stuff to do with financial services takes a really long time. Like you look at the, the deal that the US and the EU did on the use of clearinghouses for derivatives, where they had this sort of mutual recognition. Clearinghouses, sort of this intermediary bit when you have two partners trading, that you put down a bit of collateral and it provides some sort of sense of security for the whole thing. It's not exactly esoteric, but it is really minor compared to everything else. That took three years for them to negotiate. And even then was only really happening because there were rules coming in on the use of clearinghouses for derivatives. None of that pressure is here in this time. So you just think any deal with this kind of really sophisticated financial services economies is going to take a really, really long time. If it happens quickly, it's because we capitulated. And a lot of the opposition to TTIP was focused on particular things that we feared that the Americans were going to do with their chlorinated chicken and hormone-pumped beef and so on. Would this not be 
because it's just us negotiating, would that not be that but worse? There'd definitely be a, a bit of that. I mean, almost certainly when we talk about those cheap food imports, that would involve, you know, hormone-injected beef and chlorinated chicken. The other part of what upset people on TTIP was these investor trade dispute mechanisms, basically these sort of secretive investment courts that you can use when you feel you've been hired done by by government policy. But what that really allows is the private sector to come and just overrule state actions and to sue states on that basis. They've used this for some countries to almost cripple them, you know, for instance, on privatisation of water. And mm. the whole point of that would be that from what we know of TTIP, which was never published, of course, is these things are all negotiated in secret and you have to rely on leaks. There'd be all sorts of things that certainly Jeremy Corbyn wouldn't like, the curbs on nationalising companies and subsidising companies and intervening in industry and you know compulsory competition you know, that might, might affect bits of the NHS. There's all these things and they'd be subject to a court that as, as uh, Ian has said, private sector companies, uh, multinationals from America would be able to appeal. So we'd end up ridding ourselves of a loss of sovereignty and the oversight of a foreign court only to agree to essentially a loss of sovereignty and oversight by a foreign court of some sort. <laughs> I mean, exactly. you know, th- it, this is the whole point. It doesn't really make sense. How many times are they going to bring this crap up? I mean, she must have used the Trump thing on trade deals like three times already, and over and over they do it. It doesn't seem any closer to really happening. And even if it was to happen, like if there's one rule in, in sort of trade that really holds fast no matter what you do, it's that the further away you are from each other, the less trade you do. It is just that simple. Each mile, less trade. It tends to be sort of 1% to 50% reduction. If you look at Canada, this is even, you know, we assume that for goods, right? Because goods, you've got to transport them, you've got to ship them over, that costs money. But even on services, when you look at it, the same thing happens. The further away you are, there's less demand for those kind of products. They're harder to deliver. When you look at services like management consultancy or or being an architect, you still need to go to a site to do it. It's not okay just to be very far away and presume that you can develop that same trade relationship. And any policy, no matter how good the actual final one with the US was, which sacrificed our relationship with the people actually on our doorstep in exchange for Australia and America, makes absolutely zero sense. It doesn't matter which way you wrangle it, it is madness. Even if you do remote working, you've got the time difference to worry about. It just doesn't work. Exactly, yeah, your languages or, you know, the instructions you put. I mean, the truth is, no matter what it is that you're dealing with, distance still counts. And while it counts, it's not very sensible to cut yourself off from your largest market on your doorstep. There are these people who say that, oh, it's, you know, Britain can just join NAFTA, the North American Free Trade Mm. uh, Agreement, and it's a ready-made deal, we just join, well... Obviously, that's true. There's there's a ready-made agreement out there that, of course, Donald Trump is trying to unpick, but let's leave that aside for a moment. The trouble is that Britain would simply just have to do its signature, you know, sign here and obey all the rules. No negotiating over Britain's exemptions to the rules. There won't be all sorts of allowances made for Britain. There would probably be no time, no transitional thing, I would suspect. And we would then have to retool all of our car factories. If we're now selling up more cars to America than Europe... Car factories have to be retooled to fit American standards on safety, the rules about suspensions and lights and all sorts of things, and, of course, the supply chain as well. NAFTA includes rules on rules of origin, one of Ian's favourite phrases, <laughs> which is that a car, where did the engine come from, where did the transmission come from, how much of a British car is this? We'd have to rejig everything just to fit in with that, and it wouldn't be any better than what we have now. OK, next up, Chukra Munna and Anna Subri's all-party parliamentary group on EU relations. Ian, this is what Romaniacs have been desperate for, parliamentary basis to push back on Brexit. Is that what we're getting? Oh, God knows. It's impossible to tell at the moment. They're basically just floundering around trying to do what they can. I, I, I have to preface this with I'm always a bit suspicious of Chukaramuna, I have to say. I mean, I, I get, you know, there's a growing sort of love for him in the Romain ranks, but I, I, my suspicion is that at front of his mind with most of this stuff is, is his career advancement and potential future leadership bits. Nevertheless, 
there are already some all-party groups that exist on this sort of thing. There's one with Nicky Morgan, I think, and um, David Lammy. David Lammy, yeah, thank you very much. And so I, I'm not entirely sure what it would be achieving that isn't being achieved already. The other thing is all party groups. I mean, they're all very well, but they are literally basically just talking shops. I mean, they don't have any, you know, sort of power. They're not like a select committee. They, they, they are sort of, you know, satellite talking shops. And, you know, this is it's all good stuff. And, you, you know, we are obviously concerned with building some sort of majority in parliament. It's parliament as a body that matters now much more than any of the individual political parties or any of the leaderships. But it's very hard to tell whether this is, you know, something of any consequence at all. Well, do you think that people are kind of angling to be in like the Remainer first 11? You know, that, that obviously the, the Labour and Tory leaderships are, <laughs> you know, are not on that side. And so among people like Subri and Amuna or Lamy, Caroline Lucas, you know, that, that actually being a kind of star Remainer is, is very good for them, you know, that it satisfies, I'm not saying they're not sincere, but it does satisfy a need that's out there. We do need these kind of figures. Look at the way Gina Miller, became, people hadn't heard of before, became kind of a hero last year. And I do think there's a craving for, for, these, for these people. Anna Subri is like a many Remainers sort of favourite Tory. Yeah, well, that's that's certainly true. And you'd have to be very short sighted to not see the problems that are developing. You know, anyone, no matter how committed they are to Brexit, now sees that basically there is no real prime minister cabinet sort of fighting each other like rats in a bag. Parliament is deeply confused. You're facing this extremely ambitious process that you're trying to deliver on and the chances of doing it are almost zero. So it does make sense to start positioning yourself for a couple of years down the line. And the people who can be quite prominent on it, you know, would obviously probably in the end advance their career by being able to say, well, look, I was critical of Brexit from the very beginning. But nevertheless, you know, there's still an awful lot of people there that you sort of think, I'm not entirely sure what it is that you're doing or what you're trying to achieve with this and how much of it is self-interest. This is where I feel this British politics just falls down in such a big way with these two-party politics because, I mean, both the Tories and Labour think say that they are broad churches. And in my country, in Holland, uh, you have these complicated coalitions and, you know, we could be criticised at the moment because our government's still not formed. However... Each party stands for something very clear, and yes, the formation takes a long time, but that's because they're genuinely trying to nail down what policy would be. And you've got an example here of, you know, Tories contain Remainers and Brexiters, which has, you know, been cutting them up for decades, mm. and Labour does as well. And so that you get such incredibly unfair rhetoric. You get people saying the stupid statistics of 82% of the population voted for hard Brexit, but there is no way of interpreting what the electorate voted for, because... Mm you know, by the very definition of them being broad churches, how can you possibly make any interpretations? And likewise, there's somebody on Conservative Home this week was saying that 85% of Parliament voted to go ahead, to push ahead with Brexit. Well, no, the party leaderships agreed a line. However, as I like, like to re keep repeating, more than half of Conservative MPs were in favour of Remain. Very large chunk of Labour MPs were in favour of Remain. And of course, the Liberal Democrats uh, in favour of Remain. So it's irrelevant to me what the party line was mm. when you do not have, in fact, a majority in Parliament for pushing ahead. If anything, you have a majority for saying, why did we do this? <laughs> It seems like one of those desperately dishonest claims that, that Brexiters make, you know, that the, every Labour voter, their main reason for voting Labour was like the line on the single market. I mean, it's just not like nobody believes that, but it's just like that 82% figure. Oh, that looks pretty good. That's right. Yeah. Brexiteer of the week is Dominic Cummings of Vote Leave, who, as we said, appeared to have a massive change of heart earlier this week with an impassioned string of tweets which seemed to say it's all gone wrong. Oh, Christ, what have I done? My words, not those of Dominic Cummings, sadly. 
Earlier this month, he admitted that the referendum was a dumb idea and leaving the EU may be an error. As well as calling the government morons from withdrawing from Eurotom, we got Tory party keeps making huge misjudgments re what the referendum was about. Eurotom was different treaties, European Court of Justice role, no significant problem. And it's like Hatchier, Boris Gove Clark, anybody sentient, tell May, DD, that's David Davis, today this is unacceptable bullshit and must be ditched or she will be. Ian, is he having a meltdown? Is this a cry for help or have we, have we misunderstood <laughs> Dom all along? Um, I don't think he's having a meltdown. I think he's basically... I don't know how much of it is cynicism and how much of it isn't. He's either doing that Iraq war thing. I think we talked about this last week. Just saying, look, this is really going horribly tits up. I need to detach myself morally from it. So it's not the decision itself. It's the manner in which it was implemented, which is the classic way of saving yourself from something that you were part of. The other, you know, the other interpretation is he really is aghast at the sort of quality of people delivering. And I, to be honest, I wouldn't blame him that much because I remember when Theresa May was bidding for the leadership. Um, and I thought... She's still a grown-up. I mean, I disagree with her in, in terms of her views, but she's a grown-up. She's a, you know, she has stature there. Unlike someone like Boris Johnson, who I thought would be a bigger threat, because you just don't think that he has any conviction at all on any subject, would flip whichever way you know he felt like going. I was astonished. You know, I mean, when Theresa May, for instance, came out and did that speech saying there'd be no ECJ jurisdiction, I was astonished by that speech. I thought, you, you, you must know what that entails. You must know the way that that traps you later on, as it has done on EU citizens, as it has done on your atom. And by the way, I'm sticking to this your atom rather than your atom, because I think it's funnier. So I think if we could just... <laughs> your atom, like your mum. Exactly. Like your That's, that is like the good. basic... Like Uranus versus Uranus, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Except not quite as rude. Indeed, indeed. <laughs> just for that simple reason, I'm going to say to it, even though I think I'm technically saying it. I mean, Dominic Cummings, was, you know, was the, the kind of architect of, of Vote Leave. Um, he is a very clever man. He looks like a cartoon drawing of a very clever man. <laughs> is he one of these kind of sort of warrior monk philosophers that, that sort of doesn't quite realise that, like, people less intelligent than he believes himself to be, are going to actually have to carry this out. He puts himself across that way in his blog, doesn't he? I mean, he talks about all sorts of very complicated stuff to do with science and space and philosophy and so mm. on. I don't know what it is. And I think he might be may making some of it up. Well, who knows? <laughs> <laughs> but indeed, that's a, that's a, that's a good point. He, you know, there's, a, there's a suggestion that maybe he hasn't thought this through. So who, who, who are these geniuses that will carry out this almost impossible task? This is the funny thing, though, you know, even those guys, you know, you hear them all the time. They would always say it. They were saying it, you know, when, when Farage came out with that poster. It's a different camp, obviously, a different leave camp. But nevertheless, when Farage comes out with that breaking point poster, they were just like, oh, it's politics, isn't it? You know, just like Cummins, like, oh, it's just politics, the 350 million. And David Cameron would be like, just politics. My promises to reduce immigration to the tens of thousands, even though I never implemented any policies and never considered even for a second that I might actually try to do it. And for them, it is because they're just thinking in the short term of win the campaign, win today's news round. What it really does in the long term is completely destroy public trust in the information that is put out by government or by a political system. And that, in the end, gets you very self-harming decisions like, oh, I don't know, you know, like Brexit. So this kind of process, this sort of professionalisation, clever boy political game is really quite poisonous, even though it frequently happens that when you then meet the clever boys themselves, they are clever and witty. So it, it's hard not to like them on a personal level because that is their personality. But nevertheless, that attitude towards politics has done us a tremendous amount of damage and is continuing to do so. I've got a question for Monique here on this. Is it, uh, in your impression, is it easier or harder for Dutch politicians to basically do what Ian's just described, to tell things that they know are lies and just say, oh, well, it's just politics? Or, or, or uh, does the system constrain them in any way? I'm not sure about 
that. But what has always struck me is if I watch television programmes like I don't know, the equivalent of Newsnight or other political um, d- debates in Holland, they all seem so much more grown up than here. That, that is, I mean, <laughs> and, and when we've been to Brussels several times, uh, when we went just two weeks ago, everybody we spoke to at, at the Council of the European Union and at the European Parliament and at the Commission, they all seem to speak like grown ups. And then you come here and it's all just, I mean, even watching David Davies last night, uh, yesterday, being interviewed by the Lord Select Committee, he just seems so relaxed. He seems to think everything's a big joke. It just doesn't feel grown up. Exactly. And reading Dominic Cummings' uh, blog posts on the state of the civil service, he is very, 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 very critical of uh, what he calls this arrogant um, incompetence. Um, you know, that you get the, you, you get the impression, and he, he, he does say this a number of times, that anybody who's any good is driven out. Uh, people get to the top by being good at the internal office politics. They're all useless, incompetent. And then that brings you to the sort of comparison with the other side of the negotiating table, which is the European Commission, basically, you know, providing the briefing and the backup for all the uh, Barnier and all the EU leaders. Those people are the brightest and best. You know, it is a very prestigious job to be an official at the European Commission if you are from many of the countries in the European uh, Union. So you've got all these countries, 20-odd countries, in oh, Britain as well at the moment, sending people who are ambitious and bright. And they have, this is, a, this is a big worry, they have a higher quality of brain power behind their side of the negotiating table than we do. I've also heard from someone that our civil service is incredibly good and very, very talented. Who's? The UK, <laughs> but that they're being you're, constrained. You're probably joking. Well, no, no I, I heard, I I heard that recently. Is good. That, really? But they're yeah. being constrained by the politicians. They're not give, being given the information. And, or and the certainly on Brexit. Permission. I mean, they were writing in. You know, I mean, senior civil servants were writing in to Davis over and over saying, look, let us help. You, you've bitten off more than you can chew here. Let us help. No one even bothered replying to the answers. And when you see what politicians do... You know, without a civil service, you got David Davis sat there going, "Well, we don't. We actually haven't worked out what would happen in, in the event of a No Deal outcome." You just think civil servants will sit there and go, "Well, hang on a minute, that's the default. Like, No Deal is default. Unless you do something, you get to No Deal. The first thing you do in any political problem is you work out what the default is, and that structured way of thinking of assessing risk in the civil service, I think that they've always." done very well. I admit, you know, in the Home Office in particular, civil servants are usually terrible. In the Foreign Office, they're usually at the much higher end. But generally speaking, I would say that the British Civil Service does a pretty good job. I think, Dominic, I think Dominic Cummings' ideal scenario would basically be him in a room sort of like playing four different games of chess simultaneously yeah, yeah. and sort of dazzling exactly. everybody. And then at the end, the Europeans just, we've given it all away! And another <laughs> win for Dom. <laughs> just let me out of them. Dominic, if you're listening, we're here to help. Uh, use your powers for good. Come and join the Remainers. We're delighted to have Monique Hawkins with us as today's special guest. She's a Dutch citizen. She's lived in Britain for 24 years. She's married to a Briton. She has two kids and she's paid all of her taxes. And then after the referendum result, she thought she'd better apply for UK citizenship in order to stay, which meant applying for a permanent residence card first. The Home Office refused and told her, even though she had rights to stay in the UK as an EU citizen, that she should make arrangements to leave the country. Monique, first of all, are you, are you okay to stay now? Is it is that all resolved? Yeah, I'm a dual citizen now, so I've all gone right. all the way through PR and citizenship. Uh, and it sounds like a, a grueling experience. Um, could you sort of sketch out like what what exactly happened? What was your first sort of shock in the process? 
Well, the first shock was having to um, fill out the 85-page form in the first place. I just couldn't quite believe that it applied to me. I thought it would just be straightforward citizenship. But that was only introduced in November 2015, that requirement. And what's the kind of most abstruse information that you would have to fill in on that form? Well, um, it's been reformed since, but when I did it, um, there was no way to do it postally. You had to hand in your passport for six months or however long it took. The first question is, when did you first enter the country, which in my case was back in 92 or something, and then it said, please fill in all your absences from the country since entering. So that's just... It was like every holiday, every work trip. Yeah, yeah. And it, and it was really, really precise. It wasn't just sort of given an indication. It actually gave an example and said, if you arrive on a Monday and you leave on a Friday, then you don't count the Monday and you don't count the Friday, you count the three days in between. So it was like really, really straight. I How mean, long did it take you to fill in this form? About three days. Because I'm really organised. I went through old diaries and everything. I mean, I thought, OK, I like a challenge and I, I did it. It has since been clarified. You only actually have to do that for the five years... Uh, that you're applying mm. for, but that is not what the form said. You know, I've had a lot of abuse saying, oh, you're just stupid, you shouldn't have done that. But that is what the form said. Mm. So, but in my the, the, my downfall, uh, my stupidity was not um, uh, handing in my passport because my dad had just died and I needed to go to Holland at short notice really regularly. But fortunately, there was a nice box in the form that said, if you're not supplying your ID, please explain why. So I explained why and put in a solicitor verified copy and said, when you actually come to process my form, uh, contact me, I'll send you the original straight away. And they sat on it for four months and then rejected me, gave me no leave to appeal, took my 65 quid and said, um, you know, make preparations to leave the country unless you can now supply your ID and start again. And so it just wound me up so much. And like I said before, I went through my MP, I tried a complaint and, you know, I knew my rights were okay. I knew I didn't have to leave the country, but the way that I was treated just made me so angry. And I never used to be political, but my God, I've become political now. And do you think that this was individual incompetence, lack of empathy, or was it kind of like baked into the bureaucratic machine that this was making life unnecessarily hard for lots of other people? Yeah, I mean, originally I just thought, okay, this is someone just being over-bureaucratic. But in the process, I started learning more and more about um, the rules for other people. And I learned about comprehensive sickness insurance. And I discovered that there was this proper phrase, hostile environment, which was like a deliberate thing created by Theresa May when she was in the Home Office. The default decision is to reject. You know, you've got to have no choice whatsoever in order to accept it. But if there's anything at all, you just reject Can you go into the the health insurance stuff? So basically, to exercise your treaty rights, which is what gives you permanent residence, the EU says you have to be in one of four categories, so either a worker, a job seeker, a student or self-sufficient. But it specifies that if you are a student or self-sufficient, then you need comprehensive sickness insurance. So it's an EU rule, but this EU rule makes sense in the rest of Europe because health provision is insurance-based. Here, it doesn't make sense because the NHS, which everyone has access to, is taxation-based. So everybody pays towards that, even if you are self-sufficient or a student, because it goes through VAT and all the general Mm. taxation as well. But so going back to the sickness insurance, the point is that nobody knew about it. Absolutely nobody. I mean, I tried to explain it in January to Nick Clegg, who's obviously very much on our side. He'd not heard about it. You know, people just didn't know. So people would come into the country here, uh, students, they would ask their university, what 
else do I need to do? And they say, nothing, go and register at your GP, walk into the hospital, use it, you can get a national insurance number, that's it. So hand on heart, people didn't know. But at the point now of trying to get permanent residence, people were being rejected. You know, 30% of PR applications are being rejected on the basis of you didn't have this sickness insurance. I mean, it's just outrageous. Jesus. And, and so what happened when you went to, to The Guardian? How did you resolve this? Okay, so the sickness insurance didn't apply to me, but I went to The Guardian to... Uh, effectively, I just wanted to complain about the bureaucracy because I was just angry about my my uh, particular case, and especially that I just couldn't speak to a human being. And I honestly had intended it just to be a moan at bureaucracy, but it unexpectedly went completely viral. I mean, I got contacted by journalists as far afield as Canada, and I mean, it completely freaked me out at the beginning. Uh, Um, A new trading partner is Canada. (laughs) (laughs) And um, I didn't dare go on Twitter or look at any comments, but my sister-in-law was looking at uh, Twitter, and she suddenly that evening said, oh my God, somebody has started a petition uh, um, keep Monique in the country so we had to <laughs> contact that person saying please tear down your petition because I'm not being deported honest and in a similar vein um, a Dutch journalist told me that a Dutch politician had put in uh, some written questions into the Dutch parliament about you know this Dutch person in the UK being told to leave the country so I contacted him to say look I'm really not being deported you know can you please ask your questions about the scandal of CSI instead which is that sickness insurance And he replied and said, well, no, I can't change my questions now, but I'll put you in touch with an MEP, Sophie and Felt. And I started corresponding with Sophie, and she's then, uh, sort of following on from that, started up the Citizens Task Force in the European Parliament, which has been hugely helpful. And they invited lots of people to... Well, they invited people to tell their stories directly to them, to email them. And they say they've been overwhelmed. I mean, Guy Verhofstadt was saying at a citizens' hearing last month that um, he was overwhelmed by the thousands of emails he received... Uh, and they, he said they were personal emails. They were not copy-paste. It wasn't part of some action. It was just people suffering. And a, and a lot of these kind of stories are in this book, uh, In Limbo. Can you tell me a bit about that? Yeah, so I've I've joined this um, organisation called The Three Million, and one of the people I've met on there, um, um, Elena Remigi, uh, Italian, uh, decided that really these stories ought to be captured. So she has crowdfunded this book it's an absolutely beautiful book it's testimonies from lots of europeans but also some british uh, testimonies people that live in europe because we work very much together with british in europe you know we've all the people try to um, pit us against each other but we're very much cooperating so uh, she has uh, crowdfunded this wants to send uh, a copy of the book to uh, every MP, every MEP, and has, has sent quite a few off already. If it's all right, I'd quite like to read just one testimony, which sort of reflects a lot of the things that matter to us. So, sure. I was made redundant in France, and since I was in my late 40s, and France sadly is very ageist, I decided to come to another country that always had the reputation of tolerance, fairness, and open-mindedness. So I came here in 2010, and my daughter joined me in the adventure. She was 20 and out of university. We came here with all my savings, a tiny flat rented in Kilburn, central London, and an immense optimism and faith in this country. We found a job less than one month after in the same shop, and all was great. I moved to Kent in 2013. After one year of struggle, I managed to find a job as bilingual customer service executive, but the salary was really low. 
Once I paid my rent in a shared house and my train fares, I was left with less than £200 to live, but I didn't complain as I was in the country I chose and loved and people were so nice. Then the June referendum happened. I could not believe the results, even if I was not surprised as Kent voted massively out and I had been told to return to Frogland, bitch, but still it was a shock. Ever since I lost my job, I have sent numerous and hundreds of CVs, had a few interviews, but nothing. I have received a letter from the job centre saying I'd lost the right to remain here and they would stop my benefits, sadly I had to claim. I was left destitute as I had no money at all because with the low salary I could not make any savings. I contacted my MP who wrote a letter to the DWP and I am now thankfully back in the system but that was such a fright to know that at any moment I can receive such a letter and that I am now under scrutiny. I am making an Herculean effort to find a job but to no avail. To settle in England I have made so many sacrifices and now I am not welcome. I feel I've done all that for nothing. It breaks my heart so much that I've sunk into depression. I sleep with sleeping pills. I've become a hermit. I want to return to France, but for that too I would need money, and I don't have an income at the moment, so I am stuck. I feel like a fly trapped behind a window. I am losing hope, and I am so sad. A part of me still loves this country, but another, sadly, no longer does. I no longer can look at people in the positive way I used to. Voila. Depressing story, uh, obviously a very important book. Give us the title and the author of the book again. Yeah, so the book is uh, In Limbo, Brexit Testimonies from EU Citizens in the UK. There is very specifically no author because Elena has collected these stories, uh, but it's available on Amazon. And we'll put um, details on our Twitter feed, which is at Romaniacs Cast, and on the Romaniacs Facebook page if anybody's interested in that book. One of the reasons I wanted to pick out that story, as well as just you know get, trying to give a flavour of the, the uncertainty and the anxiety that citizens have been living with here, is um, very, there's so many problems with this UK offer that's just come out. And one sort of small example of that is this discrimination. For example, there's a grace period that they're talking about uh, during which you have to register. And they say, um, you know, by the end of the period, you have to have registered. But during the period, it's kind of voluntary. So given that immigration here is delegated down to landlords and um, employers and everything who face hefty fines if they uh, employ or let to someone who's not entitled to it, if you were a landlord and you had to choose between two people that had an EU passport, one says, I've been here for 10 years, but I haven't yet got the settled status paperwork, and another says the same, but he's just walked off the boat. I mean, what are you going to do? You're going to just want to let to a British citizen instead. And this is happening already. You know, EU citizens really, really are already suffering in concrete ways from this uncertainty. I don't think a lot of people realise exactly how much anxiety and disruption no. it causes to, to EU citizens' lives. I've seen people, I've, I've got a friend who's, uh, who's Greek by birth, lives here, and he's constantly being kind of harassed by Brexiters on, on Twitter who just don't get why he would take this personally, mm. why it actually might affect his life on a kind of molecular level day to day. That's right. And I mean, and I'm in quite a lucky position because, you know, I've got dual nationality and I've got my PR and everything. But, you know, this um, the UK versus the EU offer is affecting me personally as well because, you know, family reunification is a big thing and the UK just shouts, well, how, you know, we can't possibly give you guys more rights than British citizens. But I'd like to challenge that. Like, well, why not? Those were my rights before. You are taking 
them away. And by the way, these are rights that British citizens who have used freedom of movement are entitled to as well. By the way, it also affects British citizens in Europe that Theresa May has always said she was so concerned about. So you are wanting to strip my rights away just because in 2012 you made the Immigration Act, um, you know, you, you put Britain uh, at the bottom of a, a list of family-friendly, uh, I've got the quote somewhere, but, um, mm. you know, we rank really, really low for family-friendly immigration rules. So why does it have to be a race to the bottom? And, you know, another thing about this uncertainty is we've been, try you know, we're very pleased with the EU offer. They've, they've consulted with us widely. They really have. They've sort of, um, they let us see draft versions of the negotiating directors. We're able to give input. They address most of our comments. But the one thing that neither offer gives us is ring fencing. And, um, you know, even if everything goes really well next week and they suddenly all decide that, yes, they'll agree on us, it is an agreement which is worth nothing if Theresa May next year walks away in the no-deal scenario. So it means that our anxiety, no matter how much agreement we can achieve now, it'll all fall apart. So we've been getting academic... Um, we've got academic papers saying that it should be possible, not just for this to be a gentleman's agreement, but to actually nail it so that even in the event of no-deal, this agreement should still stand. So like you said, there's a lot of people out there in this situation. Finally, what would be your... Your advice to somebody that was facing this kind of the bureaucratic nightmare that, that, that you did, I mean, obviously not everybody can take exactly the, the same path through The Guardian and, and, and Nick Clegg and so on. Is no, there, is there I mean, anything that you can advi advise? That's, it's very tricky because, you know, I think any advice is a bit... Personally, I would probably still go for permanent residence, even though the UK government is saying don't. Um, I don't agree with their offer putting us all in a settled status under UK immigration law. We need to be protected by EU law, um, you know, with a supranational court that we can appeal to. Our, you know, our rights are should be based in EU law and, and reciprocal and tied to the rights of Brits in Europe. And for that, you will ultimately need PR. So I would still go for PR if you can. Uh, hopefully the CSI will be dropped. I don't know. We d we're carrying on lobbying. Write to your MP. Explain it to him. My MP didn't understand about British immigration law and how hard it was. So, I mean, talk to your MP. Try to explain it to people. Thanks, Monique. Um, glad to have you with us in every sense. Thank you. <laughs> Okay, time for a quick commercial break. If, unlike Ian, you occasionally tire of Brexit, you might want to retreat to the soothing worlds of music, film, TV and books. In which case, you need to listen to our sister podcast, Big Mouth, the Thinking Time Wasters pop culture talk show. Every week, Britain's best entertainment journalists talk about the new albums, movies and TV series. It's a bit like Romaniacs minus the rage and despair. <laughs> this week is a summer special in which we find out which record and books to take on holiday from guests Michael Han, ex-Guardian music editor and my old boss, and TV writer Julia Rayside. Perfect for enjoying that swan song trip to Greece, Spain or Italy before the shutters come down we all have to holiday at Pontins forevermore. You can find Big Mouth at audioboom.com slash channel slash Big Mouth. It's the pop culture podcast for smart people. Much as we'd all love Brexit to come to a shuddering halt for everyone to realise that it's really quite a bad idea, shuffle away while agreeing never to speak of it again. Even the most dedicated Romaniac has to admit there's an overwhelming chance that we will indeed leave the EU around the deadline of March 2019. Deal or no deal, we could find ourselves out in the cold with only our huge shoals of inshore cod and our great fruit and vegetable picking opportunities to sustain us. But could we ever rejoin the EU? 
The concept of re-entry is not just something from a Roger Moore Bond film. It could be Britain's future one day. Peter, you're the man who would know. Is this likely or even possible? Well, on paper, it's possible. If you look at the famous Article 50, which Britain has um, invoked from the EU treaty to, to leave, it has a clause that says any country that has left has the right to reapply under Article 49, that being the article that sets the rules for applications to the EU. However, um, applying to join the EU is a very long and very arduous process. They basically sit you down like a naughty schoolboy and make you go through 34 or so chapters of the main, this massive rule book of the EU called the Acquis Communautaire. And they say, right, on human rights, science, tax policy, um, health, consumer protection, let's see what your record is on this. Hmm, not very good. You're going to have to improve on this, 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 and this. And it's very much um, the applicant is a supplicant. But, you know, that the EU has got used to this. So Croatia, the last one to join in 2013, had to go through all this, was told must do better next time. Term, otherwise you won't get up get in on time so we'd have to if we actually are all the way out they won't be very well disposed to us uh, uh, by that stage I don't think and we'd have to go through all the process again and they might not be terribly uh, nice to us on the way back in and Ian what would the political environment have to be for this to to even be a possibility well this is the thing isn't it that you I mean I just can't imagine that things would have changed very much by then. I think where we'll be is... Uh, look, there's a couple of things. We've been talking about transition for a while now, especially this week. Now, Labour are fully on board with a very sensible approach to transition, or at least they are for now. You never know which opinion they'll hold on which day. But nevertheless, at the moment, they're on board with the transition, which is change as little as possible and have the transition last up until the trade deal is signed. Uh, we're expecting the trade deal to take about five years to negotiate, which I think is realistic, probably longer. And we'd have changed nothing, you know, so we'd still accept the European Court of Justice jurisdiction, still accept freedom of movement, all the standards. That's the current thinking in Labour. As I understand it, that's pretty much where Philip Hammond is at and I think where David Davis is going to. So suddenly you can find that if we were rethinking about this, you know what, in 2024, actually we wouldn't have changed anything. So that conversation of what has changed for you, what, what do you have to reach, we would be in exactly the same practical situation that we'd been in up until then. However... There's still a political dimension, which they can say, you know, you've got to join the Eurozone, you've got to join Schengen. They can make demands of us that they ha currently haven't been able to do. Not least the massive British rebate that we, of course, that Mrs. Thatcher yeah, uh, negotiated all those years ago. The other countries aren't particularly keen on that. We would start without that rebate. Yeah. We'd have to argue. Otherwise, we would end up paying even more than we do now. And I think we'd be unlikely to, to succeed on the rebate. What would make us do? I mean, I sort of think we're, we're sort of almost already there, really. I mean, I'm, I'm looking at... I was looking today, you know, figures that came out today being Wednesday when we recorded figures that come out from the ONS on inflation, which is at 2.9 compared to wage growth at 2%. That is just, you know, a lot of people having less money to buy the stuff that they want. Looking at the figures on consumer credit is startling. It's like 10% year on year rises in private credit. This is exactly where we were in 2008. People taking on loads of consumer of, of credit in order to keep on buying, which is what's keeping the economy going. The Wherever you look in the economy, you see these really startling, troubling signs of something quite, quite bleak happening. And it will be through that, I think, rather than anything else, that would trigger some sort of change of heart. Question is, when does it happen? Does it happen in time? The final point on that, by the way, is that even on transition, transition could be within Article 50. We could easily say, well, look, we're going to petition for Article 50 to be extended up until the deal is signed. That actually keeps us in. We wouldn't even have to reapply. We could pretty much change our minds whenever we wanted to. And we could avoid all of this nightmare. Uh, an important thing also is when you get crises, quite often 
economic crises. They, they're, they're not necessarily just caused by factors within the country undergoing the crisis. Mm. So here's a, 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 an extended version of your scenario that you know the British economy does begin to show more and more signs of going wrong. It's blamed, correctly or not, on Brexit. Uh, we uh, can't put up interest rates because of the weakness of the economy. Meanwhile, up the, key, the external factors that other countries, the Americans, the ECB, whoever, the Japanese or whoever, start to put up their interest rates because that suits their economies. That puts a huge amount of pressure on sterling. If everybody else is ramping up interest rates and we're having to keep them low for economic reasons, that triggers an even bigger fall in the pound. And that's, that's where we get the kind of classic currency-led crisis. Then people start to say possibly Brexit has caused all this, even if they're not necessarily 100% right on this. Mm. And that changes the politics. Mini, you're our hotline to the continent today. <laughs> do, you, do you think the rest of the EU would, after this Farago, welcome us Farage, back? Farago. <laughs> would welcome us back, let, let bygones be bygones. Like, how, what, what is Britain sort of... St- I mean, I know obviously you live here, but you've still got you know, friends and relatives... In Holland, and, and do you know what Britain's sort of standing is there? Is is it just kind well, of? Well, I think at the moment you? they're laughing at us. They feel sorry for us. They just think we've lost it completely. I don't know whether they would welcome us back. I mean, a few have said yes, we'd let you back in, haven't they? They've said that. I mean, Macron said that, and I think others have. But I could easily imagine them saying, "Well, you were never even properly in." You were never in. I think that's fundamentally the problem is we were never in in the spirit of the EU, were we? Did you right, yeah, it was constantly exceptionalism, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, oh, we yeah. need that, we're not going to do that. And we just, as an island, just don't feel part of it. We don't buy into the peace, uh, you know, the positives of freedom of movement or the positives of keeping peace. That just never seems to have been accepted here. So I don't know. We weren't the kind of nicest members of the band, were we? No. And now they might not want to let us get back in. Now they found a new basis. They do occasionally <laughs> talk about this kind of stuff. I mean, you know, with, the, with basically the idea of any kind of sort of security or military stuff going on on the continent. Now that we've left, they're, they're all like, oh, wow, we can actually just push this stuff through pretty quickly now that the Brits are gone. So it's quite possible. It's not we're not there now. But, uh, you know, you get the sense talking to people in Europe that in, you know, what, nine months, 12 months, they could actually be like, you know, actually... We kind of prefer it when you're not around. Is this is Britain basically Peter Hook that he left New Order and he thought that everybody was going to miss him and it couldn't carry on without him? But in fact, they were quite relieved he was gone because he was a real pain. And then they could pursue the electronic, very successful electronic direction that he was always obstructing. And now they're fine, and he's just doing cover versions of New Order songs. Is, is it possible? It's for basically you to, that, right? Can, can you think through political issues without comparing it to pop music? I, think it's I don't. Know, I mean, it's possible, but I don't know why you want to. <laughs> Just one thought, uh, quick thought. There was this former ECJ judge, Sir David Edward. Did you see his intervention this week? He pointed out that supposing we do reach a Brexit deal with the EU, um, it would be subject to the jurisdiction of the ECJ. Yes, People right. could challenge it and say, sorry, this that what's been agreed for Britain breaches European Union law. So they could actually stop Brexit that way. Uh, a successful court challenge at the ECJ could say, sorry, rip it all up. Britain has to stay until something suitable that passes ECJ uh, approval is, is approved. And also the European Parliament have said that they will veto it if, for example, the citizens, they are very, very behind the citizens issue, if that's not agreed. So, I mean, I was saying to my MP like, when I saw him a couple of weeks ago, I said, for God's sake, just do the right thing, you know, decent British fair play, just treat us as a one-off 
uh, group of people that just want to keep our rights as though Brexit hadn't happened. Those are the words of Michel Barnier. Just do the right thing so that you can then carry on with your trade negotiations because you're not going to get there otherwise. Well, Monique, with a radical proposal that the Britain does the right thing, it's, it hasn't <laughs> been tried, but it's <laughs> worth a shot. Now, like Theresa May's premiership, our time is running out. Before we wrap up, we're continuing to get great feedback from Ramonas, Romaniacs and Bregretas from far and wide. Leads for Europe on Twitter says, have come late to the Romaniacs cast podcast, but highly recommended to anyone wanting a regular dose of sanity around all things Brexit. Zazabatur, get it, also on Twitter, says, excellent as always, although slightly unnerving, that Ian Dunt sounds like the missing link between Jack D and Tim Henman. You know... <laughs> what, does that, what does that even that, mean? That's, I, I, it just it makes me sound like a posh twat. No. <laughs> but also grumpy. <laughs> so, and Evie Von Berg says, witty, well-informed and joyously savage in its dismantling of Brexit myths. Check it out. Um, meanwhile, on iTunes, user Hugh Mondo says, uh, definitely the most acerbic, insightful, witty take on the ever-increasing disaster piece of performance art that is Brexit. And that's the show. Thanks for listening. Thanks to Ian, Peter and our special guest, Monique Hawkins. We're delighted that you get to stay in the UK. Most of us are trying to escape. <laughs> Remember, you can get links to hear more Romaniacs, plus our social media connections at Romaniacs.com. There's links to our archive, listen again buttons, links to us on Audio Boom, iTunes and now Spotify as well. We'll be back to talk Britain down again this time next week. Until then, we're going to finish with a reason to be cheerful. And it's my turn. And it's a good one. Grandpa Munster look alike Rodri Colwyn Phillips, the fourth, and probably the worst, Viscount St David's, <laughs> has been found guilty of malicious communications regarding Remainer superstar <laughs> Gina Miller. In a Facebook post last November, he wrote, £5,000 for the first person to accidentally run over this bloody troublesome first-generation immigrant. He was also convicted for offering a further bounty to anyone who carved up a man in Luton. A specific man, not just any man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I thought it was any man, so I, I, I contributed yeah. to it. <laughs> I carved up a man in Luton just to get five grand from a Viscount, as Johnny Cash sang. Lovely man. Somehow I don't think his main reason for voting leave was sovereignty. In his defence, he quoted his family motto, we've all got one, love of country is my motivation. He claimed he was being satirical, which is a stretch, but I will credit him for setting up a very long joke which paid off eight months later with him going to jail. <laughs> That's a good punchline. So there we have it. Another show over. And instead of me mangling another language, as we have an actual Dutch speaker here, let's have a thank you and goodbye from Monique. Hartelijk bedankt and uh, iedereen tot volgende week. Oh, wow, that sounded great compared to the dross we usually get at this stage. <laughs> <laughs> but it's like sincere dross. Yeah. <laughs> I did a dazzle for a moment. Romaniacs is presented by Dorian Linsky, Ian Dunt and Peter Collins. It's produced by Matt Hall and Andrew Harrison. Romaniacs is a Podmasters production.